This session is called Update in Tropical Medicine. Masks are not required. You can feel free to mingle with your family and those in your pod. I have no financial relationships to disclose. Therefore, any misinformation is strictly my own doing. Lord, you are the creator and the great physician. I want to honor you and your purposes in all our lives. Teach us today about your people around the world who are in need and how we can be co-healers with you. Sam, it's great to hear your voice. As I've said before through my prophet Zephaniah, I rejoice over you with singing. Thank you. I needed to hear that right now. Well, keep in touch more often. Hi, I'm Sam Palpant, and I'm sitting here in my backyard in the tropical jungles of Spokane, Washington. Wait a minute, this isn't tropical or jungle, but we can imagine ourselves in some of those places, and you may find yourself in that exact situation sometime in the future. Hopefully, we can have some fun today as we explore some cases in tropical medicine. Hi, I'm Judy Palpent, Sam's wife. This photo of our family was taken during our first year working at a mission hospital in Western Kenya, where we lived for six years. Our children are all adults now, but this time in Africa shaped their lives and future Christian worldviews in powerful ways. We hope that many of you will hear the Lord calling you into the amazing opportunities in medical missions. Details of our learning objectives are given in your syllabus, but in summary, we will briefly explore four core topics of tropical medicine. First, we will talk about aspects of disease prevention and various ways that childhood immune development can be positively or negatively impacted. The next three topics are the most common presenting medical issues for those who live in a tropical climate or travel there. These are fever, skin rashes, and abdominal complaints. This is the child of Tibetan nomads in southwestern China. She's had no school, no immunizations, and no antibiotic exposures. Bathing is almost unheard of and there's no health care except traveling mission doctors like Dr. Doug Briggs, who took this picture. Yet I suspect this child has some immunologic advantages. Her intestinal microbiome is likely much more diverse than most children in developed regions, and that alone gives her substantial resistance to intestinal infections. Her survival alone suggests a hardy constitution yet she is at heightened risk for many preventable diseases and also endemic diseases like tuberculosis. I'll pause periodically in this talk to give you a chance to ponder some questions. Try to think of your own answers before I share my thoughts. The man on the left, Francis, has a withered and contracted leg but walks with his one good leg using the single arm cane. His unilateral weakness began when he was about the current age of his son Shadrach on the right. Francis illustrates one of the classic late effects of paralytic polio. Amazing progress has been made in the incidence of paralytic polio so that wild type polio is now only found in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Unfortunately, occasional paralysis due to vaccine-derived live attenuated polio virus is still problematic. Injectable polio vaccine has replaced the live attenuated vaccine in the U.S., and ultimately this transition may occur in developing countries. 
Anopheles mosquitoes are the primary vectors for malaria. While COVID-19 has killed over 200,000 people this year in the U.S., in Africa, malaria has again killed around 400,000 people, mostly children. In Africa, mosquitoes have shown increasing resistance to the most commonly used insecticides. For example, during this 12-year study, the proportion of West African mosquitoes resistant to deltamethrin rose from 15% to 98%. Until recently, pyrethroids have been the only insecticides used to treat bed nets. Now, dual insecticide-treated nets are showing promise. Our efforts at vector control don't always achieve their intended purposes. This photo by Dr. Rob Congdon during a trip to South Sudan shows strips of donated mosquito netting that were used to tie the grass roof for this hut. Rob hoped that this was simply wise repurposing of old bed nets, but especially in desperate circumstances, immediate need generally overcomes well-meaning efforts at prevention. Drone release of sterilized male mosquitoes and transgenic mosquitoes have also been studied as mechanisms for vector control. In this case, Aedes mosquitoes are the vectors for dengue, chikungunya, and Zika virus. Last year, nearly 400 million people had dengue, often called breakbone fever. There's no specific antiviral therapy, and repeat cases, although rare, can be fatal. There's a licensed vaccine, but safety concerns are still problematic. Most cases occur in South Central and Southeast Asia. The World Mosquito Program is now working on a unique disease control strategy. They are releasing mosquitoes that have Wolbachia in their intestinal microbiome. Wolbachia is an intracellular, rickettsia-like endosymbiotic bacterium that reduces dengue virus transmission by reducing mosquito lifespan and inhibiting viral replication. The organism is also passed on to later generations of mosquitoes. What do you see in this photo of a young married couple in Uganda? If you look carefully, you see the third small head on the far right. Yep, triplets. What problems might you anticipate for this young Ugandan couple? Having enough breast milk for all three and later on enough food will be a challenge for them and have a notable impact on the general health and immune development of these children. This child from Northern Kenya had severe protein energy malnutrition also called Merasmus. This chunky-looking child from South Sudan is also malnourished, but with an edematous malnutrition so that he almost looks well-fed. Pitting edema is most notable in dependent regions like the legs, but can progress to generalized edema called anasarca. Skin is often peeling and hyperpigmented in places, so it has been called flaking paint skin. The red hair is also a clue. This condition was previously thought to be secondary to protein deficiency, but newer studies suggest it is caused by changes in the intestinal microbiome in conjunction with a specific nutrient-poor diet. This child is clearly emaciated, but Historically, she has plenty to eat. What might you think of in this case? She also has very poor immunity. Did I give you enough clues? This child has congenital HIV AIDS. It's important to differentiate malnutrition due to insufficient caloric intake from those who have either a malabsorption problem or a catabolic state such as that produced by chronic disease. HIV AIDS and tuberculosis, either separately or in conjunction, 
are two fairly common examples that can produce this condition. Last year, Dr. Congdon saw this 10-day-old child in South Sudan who presented with repeated spasms and this striking posture. The disease is preventable through immunization of pregnant mothers. Do you recognize it? This is neonatal tetanus, often associated with the traditional practice of placing cow dung on the umbilical cord. Those traditions may be hard to change, but maternal immunizations have become increasingly acceptable in many regions and effectively control this tragic and often fatal condition. Well, let's move from general discussions of nutrition and immunity to constructs and cases related to fever. This child's homemade wire vehicle can remind us that travel history is a key element for making some critical diagnoses. The initial evaluation of patients with fever who have traveled to or live in tropical climates involves an immediate search for life-threatening treatable and or transmissible diseases. The specific locations of travel, length of stay, types of contacts, and disease incubation period can help clarify particular risks, including both endemic and epidemic diseases. In some cases, a public health official should be notified of contagious diseases. The CDC travel website and Yellow Book are helpful resources to elucidate disease risks, learn about current outbreaks, needed vaccinations, and desirable travel prophylactics regimens. This picture shows that social distancing is not a normal feature of African schools. When fever is accompanied by certain signs, symptoms, or lab findings, specific infections will be more likely. Some will require immediate attention and or isolation of the patient. Hypotension, fast pulse, and rapid breathing are all signs of sepsis syndrome which requires immediate attention. Easy bleeding can suggest hemorrhagic fever syndromes, disseminated intravascular coagulation, and other diseases with low platelet counts. Altered consciousness is another example of a key finding. Chronic cough might be a sign of pulmonary tuberculosis or other infectious disease requiring isolation. In the notes section of this slide, you can find a list of several specific syndrome groupings. What is your answer to this question about the most common life-threatening tropical disease associated with fever in returned travelers? Hmm, I hope you guessed malaria. It is also a common cause of death among children in tropical Africa. This child was in the waiting room of a small clinic in Uganda. You can see from the mother's dress soaked with sweat that the child has a high fever. While they were waiting, the child had a grand mal seizure. What would you pursue as your first diagnostic test while you think about it? The next slide will show you what was found in this case. This isn't the actual blood slide from this child, but it looked very similar with a high-grade parasitemia with malaria parasites, typical of Plasmodium falciparum. This is the cause of cerebral malaria and other highly lethal manifestations of malaria, usually caused by P. falciparum. Rapid diagnostic tests for malaria, also called RDTs, are available. They're easy to use and can be very helpful for rapid diagnosis. They work by detecting malaria antigens in blood and show results in 15 to 20 minutes. Malaria RDTs are generally accurate, except occasionally with very low parasitemia levels. They require no special training or equipment. Binax Now Malaria is a brand name test 
but it is the only currently available RDT for malaria in the United States. I advise travelers going to malaria regions to carry one or two RDTs, but also recommend that they request a blood smear be done and the slide given to them for later review. The blood slide can be helpful to determine the degree of parasitemia, also called parasite density, and to confirm the card test results. Malaria treatment can be complicated, but in general, there are only a few places in the world where chloroquine is still useful for P. falciparum. Chloroquine-sensitive falciparum malaria is shown in blue on this map. Chloroquine-sensitive P. falciparum has also reappeared in some areas like Malawi in Africa after it was withdrawn due to resistance in 2006. But it could return unless chloroquine was combined with another effective drug. Chloroquine is also generally effective against non-falciparum strains of malaria such as P. vivax, P. ovale, and P. malariae. For relapsing forms, such as P. vivax and P. ovale, additional therapy is required to treat the dormant hypnozoite that lives in the liver. Primaquin must be given for two weeks, but tafenaquin is a newer single-dose drug that can also prevent relapse. Testing for G6PD deficiency is recommended before using either of these relapse prevention medications. In locations shown in brown, falciparum malaria is best treated with artemisinin combination therapy, also called ACT. Atovaquone proguanol can also be used in some cases if it was not used for prophylaxis. The small region in black includes Cambodia, where highly resistant malaria has been found, including artemisinin resistance, which requires more complicated combination therapy. This photo was taken several years ago, but shows my former medical students, Michael Harms and Justin Brandler in Uganda. Not everything went as planned. One of many surprises was an outbreak of Ebola in the area where they were living in southwest Uganda. Fortunately, neither one was affected, but many prayers were given on their behalf during that time. More recently, Ebola outbreaks have continued in Uganda's western neighbor, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or DRC. That outbreak is now in its 11th cycle, and collectively, they have been the second largest Ebola outbreak in history, second only to the West Africa outbreak from the end of 2013 to 2016. This photo by Dr. Doug Briggs shows some beautiful Chinese young people that he called the comeback foursome. They were each separately diagnosed with severe tuberculosis. The young woman, second from the left, was in a coma from a brain tuberculoma. The family was already preparing a coffin. The Lord spared their lives through the excellent medical care of Dr. Briggs. Even more wonderful, the two in the middle came to know the one who offers the life that never ends. This case describes a young man from Kearney, Nebraska, who presented to his physician with four days of fever, up to 104 degrees. He also noted severe fatigue, myalgias, and loss of appetite. He reported a fine maculopapular rash on his trunk that was now almost gone. Other past medical history, social history, and review of systems were unremarkable. What additional history would you ask the person? Well, I'm hoping you thought about asking about travel history. Further history revealed that this Nebraska fever began on the way home from a two-week mission trip to Cambodia. 
This young man made a late decision to join the team from his church going on the trip. Unfortunately, he had no time for a conversation with his physician about travel preparations. So he went without any malaria prophylaxis, no travel immunizations except his prior routine childhood vaccinations. Fortunately, he made good choices during the trip and had no sexual contacts, no swimming in freshwater lakes, and he avoided street vendor food or other overt risk factors. He did note many mosquito bites. His initial lab results were notable for a low total white count with lymphocyte predominance and a very low platelet count as well. There were slight elevations of his liver transaminases suggesting a mild hepatitis. Other findings were unremarkable as shown. What do you think is the most likely diagnosis for this young man? What would you check first? I'll give you a moment to think of your own ideas. Well, malaria should always be an early guess, even if it may not be the most likely one. Several other diseases might also be considered as shown here. Maybe you have other additional ideas. Several malaria smears were negative in this patient, and blood and stool cultures were also negative. Initial dengue and chikungunya serology were negative, as were other diagnostic tests. Even though the first dengue serology was negative at day four, the history and lab seemed classic for dengue. Recheck of dengue serology one week later was strongly positive for both IgG and IgM. This is a reminder that acute serologies may be negative for many diseases until an adequate antibody response is mounted. A PCR test for viral nucleic acid or an antigen test would likely have been positive at the first visit, but these were not available and are more expensive. Dengue IgM antibodies can be found as early as day four of an illness, and this is usually an excellent screening tool, except in the first days of illness. The World Health Organization Region of the Americas reported the highest number of dengue cases in history last year. Infectious disease case data collected through key clinics around the world is compiled periodically into tables showing the prevalence of various common travel-related diseases. This graphic shows that in Africa, the overwhelming cause of fever in travelers is malaria. In South Central and Southeast Asia, dengue gains the predominance, with malaria plus typhoid and paratyphoid fevers next in line for the probable cause. Chikungunya is a virus that causes a disease syndrome similar to dengue with the added prominence of a severe diffuse joint pain and even true arthritis. There's no treatment or vaccine for chikungunya, so avoiding mosquito bites is the best protection. Prior to 2013, chikungunya cases and outbreaks were concentrated in South Central and Southeast Asia, with fewer cases in Africa and Europe. In late 2013, the first local transmission of chikungunya virus in the Americas was identified in Caribbean countries. The virus then spread through much of Central and South America. NASA is using satellite data to predict global rainfall and droughts that anticipate outbreaks of mosquito-borne infections months in advance. This map from last July is the forecast for chikungunya. The hot spots are in India, Southeast Asia, Central America, and the Caribbean. Of course, there are many other causes of fever in travelers and those who live in tropical regions. This table is an example of information found in the updated CDC Yellow Book 2020. 
For those anticipating travel to certain countries or regions, this resource and the CDC travel site can help guide general health precautions, immunizations, prophylactic medications, mosquito bite prevention, diagnostic tests, and even traffic safety. Lord, how are things going from your perspective? Well, thanks for asking, since my perspective is the only one that really matters. You've offered a few fish, and that's all I asked. As you know, I can make something out of almost nothing. In fact, out of nothing at all. You know what I always say. Fear not. Okay, I'll try. Well, here goes nothing. There's not much new in the way of rashes in tropical medicine, but let's review some of the common problems that still persist today. This child came in originally with a diffuse maculopapular rash. This is the late manifestation of that disease with extensive hyperpigmentation and desquamation. This is a picture of late measles and post-inflammatory desquamation. An infant from northern Kenya presented with this dramatic neck rash. He is part of a nomadic tribe called the Pokot people. The neck area was swollen with this bright red rash. Can you see the scaling at the edges? The remainder of the skin was unremarkable. The limited location of this rash and the general appearance suggests a contact dermatitis. The history of traditional neck charm made of preserved cowhide with nickel and other metal charms clarified the underlying cause. It resolved by keeping the necklace off and applying topical steroid cream. Dermatophytes are fungi that may infect humans, other mammals, or reside in the soil. They are more common in warm and humid climates. This image shows a Yugoslavian boy who has an unusual presentation of a common problem. This is severe tinea capitis. The more common form of so-called ringworm causes local circular patches of hair loss with scaling skin. It is a superficial fungal infection of the scalp that can involve the eyebrows and eyelashes as it attacks hair shafts and follicles. This is a potassium hydroxide or KOH skin prep. Skin scrapings from a suspected ringworm lesion have been mixed with 10% KOH and viewed under low power. The epithelial cell walls have been dissolved, revealing tubular branching hyphae. This is another common rash that can appear on multiple areas of skin or mucous membrane. In this case, the white patches are seen on the buccal mucosa of the mouth. What would you call this rash? What other diseases should it make you think of? This is classic pseudomembranous oral candidiasis. It should prompt questions about recent antibiotic exposure or inhaled steroids, but it is also highly linked with immune suppression such as seen in cases of HIV AIDS. Asking about HIV risk factors is key to diagnosing a potentially serious underlying condition. This man presented with the facial rash shown. It first began after he was splashed with a lye mixture causing local caustic injury. Then it progressed as shown. Do you recognize the disease associated with these gold-crusted lesions? This is empatigo caused by staph aureus and sometimes with group A strep. If the deeper skin is involved, it can be called pyoderma. There was rapid improvement after treatment with a first-generation cephalosporin and minimal scarring. This child from El Salvador 
had a very itchy rash as shown on the hands. The papules, scaling, and fissures are especially notable between the fingers. Do you recognize it? This is typical scabies. What do you see in this Kenyan child, aside from the fact that he is clearly not happy? The swelling near the left armpit is fluctuant on exam. If you noticed a similar swelling between the left thumb and index finger, you might have figured out the proximate cause of the suppurative left axillary lymphadenitis. If you also noticed the papules and scars on the hands of the mother who's holding her child, you made the deeper diagnosis of a contagious ectoparasite. This again is scabies with a secondary staph aureus infection and local abscesses. Treatment required both anti-staphylococcal antibiotics and scabies treatment for child, mom, and siblings. This child had multiple papular and pustular lesions that initially looked like a kind of folliculitis, but an up-close exam showed something moving in the center of each lesion. The next slide shows what I extracted. These are the fly larvae of furuncular myiasis. Certain flies lay their eggs on clothing or mosquitoes so that when they come in contact with the skin of a potential host, the egg hatches and burrows into the skin where it matures. Ultimately, they fall out and pupate before becoming adult flies again. This Kenyan Maasai tribesman has an obvious swollen upper lip. Interestingly, it is not very painful and came up over about one week. He denied any trauma. The key to this diagnosis is found on the inside of his lip, where there's a notable large mucus ulcer. The combination of a large, minimally painful oral ulcer and dramatic surrounding edema is typical of mucocutaneous anthrax. This man has a chronic progressive facial deformity with multiple papules and nodules, including the nose and earlobes. Loss of eyebrows and lashes is also noted. This is a classic picture of lepromatous leprosy. This is the multibacillary form of leprosy. This was easily diagnosed by a small skin incision on the earlobe and dermal fluid showing mycobacteria on the AFB stain. This 21-year-old female pre-med student went on a four-week medical mission trip to Guatemala. She did walk barefoot during her stay in the backyard of a Guatemalan home. They had a dog and cat. This began as a small papule and then spread over two to three days as shown. She noted some itchy sensation and it was slightly painful to walk on. This is typical cutaneous larva migraines, commonly secondary to dog or cat hookworm, which ends up in the wrong host. Strongyloides ground itch might also be considered she was treated with albendazole and resolved nicely. Here is the foot of a young man who had chronic sores and thickening of skin around his feet. His other skin looked quite normal. The ends of the toes had small sacs of fluid that would then drain periodically. He lives in a grass hut with a cow dung floor. This is the picture of a disease caused by the sand flea, Tunga penetrans. The female sand flea enters the skin typically on the feet, especially on the toes and under the toenails. The flea lives for months, causing itching and generally mild pain. It swells in size as it produces eggs and ultimately ruptures onto the surface. Secondary infection with Clostridium tetani is a risk factor for wound-related tetanus. 
Treatment is very careful removal of the fleas and clearing the fleas from the home floor. Our grandson was swimming in the eastern oceans off Australia when he suddenly experienced severe knife-like pain across his arm. This picture is from another patient but shows the same findings. Do you know the cause? Yes, this is the sting of a sea nettle, a type of jellyfish. It is terribly painful. The old folk remedy of using human urine on jellyfish stings should be avoided and can actually trigger nematocysts still in the skin to discharge. This is particularly after exposure to Australian box jellyfish, sea nettle, or Portuguese man-of-war tentacles. Our grandson is now extremely cautious about any waters where jellyfish have been reported. These are the feet of a person who was wading in the ocean off the coast of Fiji. He noted sudden severe pain in the top of his foot, then blood from a small injury above his middle toe. This is the typical story of the stingray injury. If one steps on a stingray in the sand, the tail whips up over the top of the foot to sting and may leave a residual barb there. Lord, that's the end of another section. I'm hoping I can end it well. Sam, you tell some pretty bad jokes, but you make me laugh when you least intend to. Need I remind you again that I am the beginning and the end. Your part is just a few short lines in my epic script. Okay, I get it. Are my jokes really that bad? <laughs> no further comment. A common problem among children in the tropics is a chronically swollen abdomen. The key differential depends on what is found palpating the abdomen. Is it swollen due to dilated bowel or secondary to ascites? Or is there an enlarged liver or spleen or other mass? In northern Kenya, the combination of sand flies, termite hills, and young people like this child in the center can lead to severe visceral leishmaniasis with massive hepatosplenomegaly. In other settings, one may find a swollen abdomen with splenomegaly alone. Isolated splenomegaly would be more likely caused by chronic malaria, brucellosis, early sickle cell disease, acute mononucleosis, or portal hypertension, such as that secondary to hepatic schistosomiasis. One of the most common abdominal complaints is diarrhea. It is helpful to differentiate acute and chronic diarrhea, as well as the presence or absence of fever or blood in the stool. There are many underlying etiologies, including many types of E. coli, Shigella, Campylobacter, plus several viruses and parasites as shown. But one of the most severe forms of diarrhea is caused by Vibrio cholera. Globally, cases of cholera have increased steadily since 2005 and still occur regularly in Africa, Southeast Asia, and Haiti. It is also easily treated if oral and IV fluids are available. The disease can be prevented through vaccinations and care with food and water. Most acute diarrhea can be managed by giving adequate fluid and electrolyte replacement, and antibiotics are generally not needed. Cholera is an exception where antibiotics are recommended. Shigella and Campylobacter may also resolve earlier with antibiotics, but generally by the time the diagnosis is made, the diarrhea is already improving. The 2017 cholera epidemic in Yemen was the largest outbreak of the disease in modern history, with about a million cases. Currently, Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, and Mozambique remain important epicenters of cholera. Parents of children with chronic abdominal complaints often wonder about parasites. 
This last January, a medical researcher wrote to me saying, Hello, Dr. Palpin. My five-year-old daughter is having some intestinal issues. I performed the scotch tape test on her rectum this morning and analyzed it under light microscopy. I discovered something that looks like a cestode or tapeworm. End quote. This certainly looks like a worm, and it even seems like it has some segments. It's easily mistaken for a parasite, but is actually a synthetic fiber artifact. A 14-year-old child in Kenya had complained of mild abdominal cramps, but no major problems until he saw this snake coming out of his rectum while having a bowel movement out in the outhouse. He was screaming that the snake had bit him. The worm was extracted and shown to be the broad fish tapeworm called Diphilobothrium latum. It is transmitted by snails to fish and fish to people. It classically causes megaloblastic anemia by competing for vitamin B12. This is the vampire of the intestinal parasites. The hookworm attaches to the intestinal mucosa and sucks blood. With heavy worm burdens, the secondary iron deficiency anemia can be profound. This slide shows the impact of two species of hookworm with varying worm burdens on the child's hemoglobin. This is the adult filarial bloodworm called schistosoma. The adult worms live in the small veins around the bladder or the rectum, depending on the species. They lay eggs that shed into the bladder, GI tract, or pass through the portal system to the liver. The eggs then cause inflammation that leads to scarring over many years. They may present with either blood in the stool or blood in the urine. Late complications associated with intestinal hepatic schistosomiasis include severe portal hypertension with ascites and splenomegaly. Urogenital schistosomiasis causes urinary blood loss and can lead to obstruction of ureters and even to bladder cancer. This image shows two large schistosome eggs from two different species. Schistosoma hebatomium, which is normally in the bladder, and Schistosoma mansoni, which would affect the liver. From the urine of a Malawian child. In September this year, a report from Malawi showed evidence of infection in more than 50% of school children in certain regions around Lake Malawi. These African school children are part of a mass treatment program to reduce the impact of helminthic diseases. Some programs are directed against common intestinal helminths, such as hookworm and ascaris. Others focus on blood flukes, such as schistosomiasis. The long-term impact of these programs depends greatly on the rates of reinfection, so public health measures are key to success. It is important to note that there are positive aspects of many human parasites, especially during childhood immune development. Some of the intestinal helminths have a migration through the body and lungs before they reach maturity in the GI tract. This seems to cause an early tutoring of the immune system in young children resulting in a kind of tolerance for less pathogenic organisms. Later, this effect appears to reduce the incidence of autoimmune diseases. I would like to say more, but that is the end of our time. As a note, the surprise guest appearance by God was through the voice of Walter Welch, who among his many talents often plays the role of Jesus in our church plays. The prayer audio recordings were produced by my friend Andrew Roginski at Summit Studios. Photo credits are found in the notes section under each slide. While God will always have the last word, that is all I have to say for now. We have a brief time for questions, so I turn it over to our session moderator.